The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Do you feel uncomfortable in some social situations? Do you feel self-conscious and insecure? Do you wish you could do something about that? If so, you'll want to hear what our guest, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, has to say. Ellen is a clinical psychologist who has devoted her career to helping her clients overcome social anxiety. And she's the author of the new book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be on. Talk to us a little bit about your background because you have a personal connection to the reason why you wrote this book. Sure. So there's a saying in academics that research is me-search. And that is because uh, researchers often are you know, naturally interested in the things that make them tick. And so I myself have a history of social anxiety. And it's not something I set out to research. But when I stumbled across it in my studies and in my training, I recognized myself. And I said, aha, that sounds like something that I know about as I've figured stuff out myself over you know, many decades in a PhD in clinical psychology, but also in helping other people overcome their social anxiety. It's been just such a privilege and delight to get to work with people with social anxiety because they are inevitably just kind and lovely people. And I love helping them discover just that. Well, how do most of us experience social anxiety? What are the things that we feel when we're experiencing that? So I'm glad you asked that. I think a really good analogy is we've all experienced some morning when we've woken up and looked in the mirror and realized we have a big zit on the end of our nose or we're having a particularly horrendous hair day. So when we see that, we feel self-conscious and there is this urge to cover whatever that flaw is. So we might want to you know, throw some concealer on that zit or maybe wear a hat that day. So that feeling of self-consciousness is essentially the same feeling as social anxiety, except with social anxiety, it is for something inside rather than something outside. There is a perception that we have a fatal flaw. And unless we work really hard to cover and conceal that flaw, people will see it and will be revealed and judged and rejected for it. So there's a sense of self-consciousness for maybe our personality or our social skills or even the signs of anxiety. Maybe we're worried that people will see us blushing or our hands shaking. So any, any number of things will make us feel like we want to hide. How does it typically manifest by gender and by age? I'm glad you asked that. So social anxiety disorder, at least, and I can, I can talk about the difference between what I call small s social anxiety, like everyday social anxiety, and uh-huh. capital S social anxiety disorder. But for the disorder, it is one of the few anxiety disorders that is 50-50 men and women. It's equal. Usually, anxiety disorders are skewed more towards women in my opinion, partially because women are more likely to 
say that they feel anxious. They're more likely to endorse that word. Men will more often say that they feel irritable or grumpy or will, you know, drown their fear into substance abuse. But with social anxiety, at least, it is 50-50. In terms of age, the hotspot where it usually develops is sometimes between the ages of 8 and 15. And those tween and teen years is when we all feel just the most self-conscious. That's the deepest pit in social hell is middle school right there. (laughs) And it it declines from there. So as we age, we naturally will mellow or feel more like ourselves unless we avoid the things that make us uncomfortable. And by avoiding things either overtly, like not showing up at a party or not ever speaking in a group or other overt avoidances or covertly say we go to the party but we spend all our time scrolling through twitter on our phone or we stick like glue to the person who came with us or we don't make eye contact the covert avoidance as well will help feed and water that social anxiety and maintain it through the years so it will naturally decline unless we work hard to maintain it by avoiding so How does social anxiety impact our lives in big ways and in small ways? Sure. So I think the line that we need to look for is if our social anxiety is causing distress or impairment. And basically, that's just the technical way of saying it really freaks us out or it keeps us from living the life we want to live. So, for example, it's totally normal to feel anxious before, say, a job interview or a first date. That's absolutely within the realm of everybody's experience. Everybody can relate to that. But if we feel that same level of nervousness before, for example, we go check out a new Pilates class, that's distress. So for example, if we lose sleep over something like standing in line in the grocery store where people can you know, inspect our cart or we feel trapped, then that's distress. Or for impairment, for example, if we forego a promotion because then we would be required to give presentations or to travel for work and meet a lot of new colleagues. Or if we are a student and we deliberately forego 20% of our grade because that's the class participation portion and we just feel unable to raise our hand, that's impairment. And so when it crosses that line, then that's when it becomes a disorder. But social anxiety affects so many of us all the time. This really is an everyday thing. And if you ask people, are you shy, which is just the everyday way of saying social anxiety, 40% of people will endorse being shy. So that is a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And if you change the question and you say, have you ever been shy? Like, were you shy as a kid? Were you awkward or shy as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. So most of us can definitely relate to and, you know, kind of nod along with the sense of social anxiety. It's very, very common. But you say that not everybody who has social anxiety is considered to be an introvert, which I thought was really interesting. That's right. Yes. I'm glad you brought that point up. Often it is thought that social anxiety is a more extreme form of introversion, and that's not actually the case. So introversion and extroversion are more about your tolerance for stimulation and where you get your energy. So introverts have a lower tolerance for stimulation, social or otherwise, and often get their energy like recharge by being alone or being one-on-one with a trusted friend or confidant or their partner, whereas extroverts get their energy from 
being in the mix. They need a lot more stimulation. And so if they're alone, they often feel sluggish and bored. However, social anxiety is about fear. And so rather than being like, you know, tomato, tomato, it's really more like apple and orange. Personality is baked in. Shouldn't try to change it. This is, you know, who you are. We want to honor that. Whereas social anxiety is about fear. And that's something that can be changed and can be worked on. So it's completely possible to be a socially anxious extrovert. There is an acquaintance that I have that I always mention because he's such a great example, who is a teacher and a stand-up comic. He loves being in front of an audience. He is drawn to the microphone. But he worries that everybody is judging him and that they don't really want him there. They want him to get off the stage. And that really limits him. And so he is between a rock and a hard place because he gets his energy from people And so without that, he is left sluggish and bored. But when he is in the mix, he's scared. So it's a uniquely torturous existence to be a socially anxious extrovert. Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we help spread the word about our sponsor, Blissy. Blissy, spelled B-L-I-S-S-Y, makes all kinds of products to help you get a great night's sleep. I've been sleeping on a Blissey Mulberry Silk pillowcase this past week, and it's made a wonderful difference in the quality of my sleep. Me too. Seriously, because silk is what's best for your hair and your skin. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, unlike cotton does. With the Blissey pillowcase, you can say goodbye to wrinkly skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair you can be proud of. I love I love the way my skin looks and the way my hair feels after sleeping on a Blissey pillowcase. And I love the fact that Blissey's pillowcases regulate temperature, keeping you cool at night. The entire pillow is cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning as you search for the cool side of your pillow. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, Blissey's are machine machine washable and durable. With the holidays just around the corner, why not give the gift of better sleep? And what better gift could you give? And Blissey products come in gift-ready packaging. Blissey is the 2021 Good Housekeeping winner for Best Bedding, so you can rest assured that you're giving a great gift. Everybody loves them. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone, even kids. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you could be Next, try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash nobody and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash nobody and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. Sleep better with Blissy and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off at blissy.com slash nobody. And Blissy has set up a great web page for our listeners. So if you're looking for a better night's sleep for yourself or someone on your gift list, check out the wonderful products and fantastic deals at blissy.com slash nobody. Perfectionism really drives a lot of social anxiety, doesn't it? Tell us more about that. Yes, yes. So I'm glad you connected those two things. Yes. So we often think that we have to give a perfect social performance in order to not be rejected. We think we have to drop a perfectly timed 
cool, confident and witty comment into conversation. Or if we're going to talk about an idea in a meeting at work that our idea has to be fully formed and we need to talk in paragraphs. And that's not actually the case, because what often happens then is because we have this sense that the bar is so high in that same meeting at work, rather than say our idea, because we think it's not fully baked, we'll stay silent. And then someone else will say it. Or we treat our social life as if it's a laser maze. And if we make one false move, all these alarms will go off around us. When in fact, it's okay to lower the bar. And when we do lower the bar, we actually are more natural and respond in kind and can kind of loosen up. And so I took a phrase from Dr. David Burns, who wrote one of the first evidence-based self-help books. And he says, dare to be average. And I just love that phrase. And so in terms of the social anxiety, it's okay to just chime in with a word or two, or to listen closely and talk when you have a genuine idea. It doesn't have to be this perfect performance. And there are also upsides to having social anxiety as well, which when I was reading about them made me feel pretty good because certainly from the definitions you have of like resorting to safety behaviors, I'm somebody who finds myself looking at my phone if I'm in a social situation where I don't really know people. It's just easy to do and to pretend you're really interested and engaged in something when you're really not. Absolutely, yes. I think you know 99% of people do exactly the same thing. I know I've certainly you know pulled out my phone when I'm feeling self-conscious or a little bit anxious. But yeah, social anxiety is a package deal. There are all these wonderful traits that balance out that fear that we all feel. And so, for instance, folks who are familiar with social anxiety are often very empathetic. They really can walk in someone else's shoes. They're altruistic. They're good listeners. And most of all, they're conscientious. They're the kind of person that you really want to have as a friend. They're dependable, reliable, thorough, and conscientiousness also just happens to be the number one personality trait that predicts both objective and subjective success in life. So definitely a good thing to have up your sleeve. Laura mentioned pulling out her smartphone, and I'm wondering more about what impact the use of smartphones and social media have on social anxiety. Oh, my goodness. So, so much our anxiety clinic has really seen an avalanche of young adults coming in saying that they have social anxiety. And personally, I think that the technology is to blame for a couple of reasons. In terms of social media, I think by now we all know that people post the highlight reel of their lives and we have access to the highs and lows and neutrals of our own lives, but only the highlights of others. And so naturally we're going to come up short. So I think that's one thing, but that's definitely been said before. In terms of the technology itself, I think that the fact that we often communicate by texting or in social media comments, the act of typing that out means that we have time to edit and perfect and compose. And we don't get the same practice that we would get just talking back and forth in real life. And so, again, that perfectionism is driving the need to have this perfect comment or this, you know, witty text. And when we do that, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times, we end up with this dearth of experience. And then that drives the two lies of social anxiety. One is that the worst case scenario is bound to happen. That if we don't have a lot of experience in talking face to face or you know, interacting with people in real time, We're not sure what's going to occur. And so our minds naturally fill in the blank with something terrible. 
Like mm-hmm. if I say hi to someone I know only slightly, they're going to ignore me or give me the evil eye. When in fact, probably they'll just say hi back, even if they don't <laughs> recognize you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it also drives the second lie of social anxiety, which is I can't handle it. Because if we haven't put ourselves in situations or found ourselves in situations that make us a little uncomfortable, then we just don't get that practice. And on the flip side is where that learning occurs. It, when we've gone into a situation that makes us grow or stretch a little bit, and we've gotten through it, then that's how confidence is built. And so without those experiences, we don't gain that confidence. So I think technology, while meant to connect us, also allows us to avoid people. And that is what is driving so much of the social anxiety these days. The groundbreaking idea behind this fantastic book is that you already have everything that you need in order to succeed in any unfamiliar social situation. So does that mean that this is something that we're born with? Yes. So interestingly, this can be explained both on a neurological level and just on a general social level. So neurologically, all of the architecture in our brains is the same if we're socially anxious or the most gregarious chatty Cathy out there. And so what we need to do is just strengthen that architecture. It has been shown that there are brain differences between folks with capital S social anxiety and folks who do not have that, but it can be changed through practice. Anything you do frequently, whether it's drive a taxi or play violin or practice these little things that might scare you a bit, can help change your brain. And just like working out a muscle can really work out your brain and help calm your fears. So neurologically, that's absolutely true. You already have everything you need. But also, even somebody who has very strong social anxiety has situations in which they feel comfortable. Maybe they're comfortable with a partner or their family. And that self, that self that they are with those people is their true self. And it's essentially the self they are without fear. And it's okay to let that self show. Certainly we have to be professional or, you know, we can be a little bit of a chameleon from situation to situation. But but fundamentally, the notion that there is something wrong with us, that there is a fatal flaw, is just that, a perception. And if we act as such, and I know that's way easier said than done, we can gather evidence through two feedback loops, one to ourselves and one to the people that we're talking to, that indeed that fatal flaw is just a perception, just something our inner critic is telling us. And your book is called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. But what's the first step to quieting that inner critic when you're starting to hear it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So this is something that's been really helpful to me is to turn your attention Outward. So if you want to imagine your attention as a spotlight, when we're feeling a little bit socially anxious, we turn that spotlight inward and we start to monitor ourselves and monitor how we're doing and how we're performing or how things are going. And that's when we start to highlight all those comments that the inner critic makes. We illuminate all those criticisms like, oh, I hope what I said just didn't sound idiotic or, oh, no, she just shifted in her chair. I hope that doesn't mean she's bored or Would I look more comfortable with my hands in my pockets? We start to illuminate that inner critical chit-chat. So when that happens, it eats up all our bandwidth and leaves very little left over for actually attending to the moment that we're in. And so that's often why we will spill our drink or step on somebody's foot because we've got all our attention focused inward. 
But if we focus our attention outward, we swivel that spotlight and point it toward the person we're talking to or the group or even just the outside environment, basically anything except ourselves, Mm -hmm. then that bandwidth magically gets loosened up. And when we are listening to the people we're talking to or looking at them, which, you know, certainly looking at faces can be a challenge for folks with social anxiety, but you know, you don't have to drill into them like a WWE wrestler. You can, you know, connect, look away, connect, look away. Then we start to respond more naturally. We listen to what's being said and we can come up with more spontaneous in the moment responses. And having that attention turn outward makes our anxiety go down. This episode is sponsored by Ritual. We're glad to have you as part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners, and we want to tell you about Ritual's essential protein products. As you may know, protein powders can be intimidating. But the fact is that we all need protein. It's not just about muscles. Protein helps support bone health and so much more. And as we go through life, our protein needs change. So it's important to choose a mix for different life stages. Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's changing protein needs during various life stages. There's Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and Postpartum. Each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Ritual's Essential Protein Powder is a good foundation for your health that's easy to incorporate into your daily rituals. I just add water, shake, and sip, and I love the great taste. So do I, and we think you will too. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. There's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non-GMO. We've used Ritual's products for several years, and we're big fans of their multivitamin and gut health products as well. We really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers. Ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our Nobody Told Me listeners get 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash NTM. Ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Visit ritual.com slash NTM today for 10% off your first three months. Again, that's ritual.com slash NTM for 10% off your first three months. I thought that the best, most simple advice that I found from the book was trying to be brave for one minute because that just makes it so attainable for anybody that a social situation is uncomfortable. Okay, well, I can just stay a little bit longer and be brave for one minute. Does that practice mean that in turn in the future, we're going to end up being more comfortable for longer periods of time or what's the goal with it? Absolutely. Yes. So the time that we most often bail is right before we walk through the door or right before whatever we're afraid of begins. Mm -hmm. Because the anticipatory anxiety, the anxiety that happens as we're imagining all the horrible things that we think are going to happen is strong. That anticipatory anxiety is a force to be reckoned with. So if we can be brave just for just for one minute after we walk through that door, I can almost guarantee that whatever your inner critic can come up with, whatever it's forecasting, it's probably not going to happen. And once we have some experience under our belt, even you know one minute's worth of experience, we can say, oh, what I was fearing isn't happening. Maybe this is okay. And 
that's, again, where that learning occurs. As we stay in a situation and discover that, hey, we can do this, and oh, wait, this isn't so bad, then that's when we gain confidence. A lot of people will come into my office and say, I want to feel more confident so I can live my life. And I say, that is awesome. And let's do that in the opposite order. Let's have you go do the things that you would want to do to live your life in order to build confidence. And you don't have to jump in the deep end of the pool. You can inch your way in and just do the little things like even if it's flag a waiter down for more ketchup or initiate introducing yourself rather than waiting for someone else to introduce themselves or to put in your earbuds in a public place and you know rock out a little bit to the music, even if somebody might give you a funny look. It's perfectly okay to start out with the little things that we would habitually avoid so that we can learn we're not actually walking a tightrope, that we were safe all along, strolling along quite a wide boulevard. And I love the fact that you say how you feel isn't how you look. Explain more about that. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So just like we often say we wear our heart on our sleeve, you know, so many of us feel like we wear our anxiety on our sleeve. We think that however we feel must be visible to everybody around us. But often we forget that anxiety is a largely internal experience. Of course, yes, it's possible that, you know, our hand might shake or our voice might quaver. I don't want to say it is never visible, but there's a phenomenon called the spotlight effect, where we are essentially each walking around in our own spotlight because we pay attention. We think others are paying attention to what we are paying attention to. And if we're focused on our racing heart or our trembling hands or our inner thoughts and our inner critics, we assume that other people are paying attention to that too. It's that same example of if you go out with a big zit on your nose, you think everybody's looking at it because you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But really, every, everyone else is walking around in their own spotlight as well. So even if there are some visible signs of anxiety, they're not attracting the attention that we probably think they are. How important is it to have more self-compassion in this? And how can we practice that? Oh, that's a great question. So self-compassion, as you and your listeners likely know, is essentially treating yourself and talking to yourself as if you would to a good friend. And we don't often talk to ourselves like this. We're often much more harsh or critical than we would ever be out loud to another human being. And so allowing some self-compassion, like acknowledging that what we fear is hard rather than berating ourselves for being wimpy or just noting that we are on a journey and that we are challenging ourselves with harder and harder things and patting ourselves on the back for that can go a long way. Because if we're trying to move forward, we can't do that in a punitive environment. No one ever got yelled at or criticized and said, you know what, they have a point. I've seen the error of my ways and I'm going to prove from here. No, if we get harshly criticized or yelled at, we usually shrink back or at the very least are get grumpy and fantasize about retaliation. So <laughs> it's, it's so so much so much healthier and really turbocharges our growth to talk to ourselves in a kind, compassionate way. So when someone tells you just be yourself, why is it sometimes hard to do that? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, so I have mixed feelings about that phrase because it's equally true that that is truly what we have to do. We can 
let all these little things that we do to try to keep ourselves safe called safety behaviors. So, for instance, we might wear sunglasses all the time so we don't have to make eye contact. We might toss in those earbuds so no one talks to us in public. We might scroll through our phone and pretend to be fascinated by our Instagram feed, but all those behaviors send a message of, you know, don't talk to me or go away or I'm prickly or I'm aloof. What we can slowly do is to challenge ourselves by dropping those little protective behaviors. And I say in the book that we cling to them like a life preserver, but really they are a life preserver that's actually keeping us underwater. These are things that are keeping us from being able to grow and change and learn. So if we get rid of those things, then we can be more like ourselves, our true self, the self we are without fear. I also dislike that phrase. It was meant to be encouraging, just be yourself. But I know as somebody who has received that phrase many times, it can feel like, what? Is that all I have to do? You know, you feel kind of sarcastic, like, oh, is that all? Gee, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is hard to let go of that life preserver. It is hard to go into situations where you're expecting the worst. But again, if you creep in that shallow end and gather more and more evidence, it becomes easier and easier and easier and easier. And it's really worth the journey because then you discover that the world is either friendlier than you thought or that you're more capable than you thought or both, which is a very freeing feeling. If we sense that somebody within our social circle or somebody we're just seeing out like a waiter may have social anxiety, what can we do to make them feel more comfortable? I'm really glad you asked that question, actually. So if somebody has confided in you, like if this is a good friend and they've said, oh, either I have social anxiety or like I'm really really not comfortable in that situation, but, but they still want to go like it's something that's really important to them. Like maybe their friend is getting married or they really want to do this because it's within their values. I would say that oftentimes our natural reaction to a friend who is socially anxious is to accommodate them, is to back off and say, oh, well, then maybe you shouldn't do that. Or, oh, give yourself a break. You don't have to do that. But in fact, that takes that learning experience away from them. So instead of being their protector, I would encourage people to be their champion especially if it's that kind of event that they really do want to do. They really do want to challenge themselves. And so rather than reassuring them like, oh, you'll be fine or no worries, it'll go great, which makes your inner critic say, no, it won't or no, I can't. (laughs) Instead, tell them the truth. Just say the first few minutes are the hardest, Mm -hmm. but I know you can get through this. Or the last time you did something like this, you were glad you went or you're strong and I know you can get through this. So rather than offering reassurance, being their champion and offering them both support and a little bit of a nudge, you know, don't push them off a cliff, certainly, Mm -hmm. but a little nudge can be quite helpful for many folks. We are a mother-daughter duo, and it seems to me that a lot of social anxiety might be rooted in, as you mentioned earlier, in in your early years. So I'm wondering what you think parents can do to encourage children to feel less social anxiety? So I think we can all create little age-appropriate new challenges for our kids. So for instance, for a young child, we might encourage them to go ask the librarian where a particular book is. You know, we can go with them and support them, but to really have 
them get used to talking to waiters or librarians or, or what have you. Or, for example, for a slightly older child, you may encourage them to try to invite their friends over for playdates directly rather than arranging it with the friend's parents. So just little things they can do to build their confidence and see that they are capable is really helpful. And of course, always be supportive. Like, for instance, if a child is afraid to go into a birthday party because they feel kind of intimidated and overwhelmed, it's a great idea to either get there early and let the group kind of form around them. Or if you're entering and there's already a group there, it's fine to kind of sit on the side for a while and just observe. Just kind of look and turn your attention outward and see what's happening. Get the lay of the land. And when they see something that is exciting to them or is inviting, they'll probably go run over. And even if that doesn't happen for a couple of birthday parties, like that's okay. It's okay to be patient and let them go at their own pace. Again, we, we want support and a little bit of a nudge, never a shove. And Ellen, we always ask our guests the same final question, and that is, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what do you wish someone had told you about social anxiety when you were initially struggling with it years ago that would have made your life much easier? I wish somebody had told me that I didn't just have to wait for it to get better, that Building confidence is kind of like the relationship between mood and action. We often think we have to feel like doing something before we do it. We think we have to feel like lacing up our gym shoes before we go to the gym. But in fact, we can start doing it and our motivation will catch up. And the same thing happens with confidence, that we can start doing things but while we feel a little bit anxious. We don't have to wait for our anxiety to go away completely before we live the life we want to live. We can just start doing those things slowly and our confidence will catch up. So I think that would have saved me many years. And uh, <laughs> I think the, also the biggest thing I want to reiterate is that social anxiety is truly a package deal. It comes bundled with wonderful traits and that folks with social anxiety are inevitably kind and lovely people and that it's such an amazing thing to discover that for oneself. Ellen, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? So I have my own podcast called Savvy Psychologist and it comes out every Friday. They can find the book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety wherever they like to get their books. And I would love to have folks come check out the website, which is simply ellenhendrickson.com. And Ellen, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a delight to talk to you. Our thanks to Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. Again, she is the author of How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Her website is ellenhendrickson.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.